freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Well, we, you know, culminators, I like to call my uh, podcast the podcast that uh, ended podcasting because I have to find some rationale for the culmination uh, pun. But if I can't, if I can't end it, I can certainly remake it. Randy Barnett, the great Professor Randy Barnett, who my 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 friend and uh, inspiration, Glenn Reynolds, tried so hard to push for the presidency not so long ago, <laughs> is here with me today. He's got and a new Ed, book. Ed, 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 Ed McMuffin got the got the nod. It's over me. <laughs> oh, amazingly, surprisingly, um, Randy, great to see you again uh, by Zoom. Uh, and uh, Randy has a new book out called The Amendment That Remade America. Did I got that right? No, it's just called The Original Meaning of You're, the 14th oh. Amendment. It's That's Letter right. and Spirit. Oh, you see, okay. You should have called The Amendment That Remade America. <laughs> That's the book. Don't listen to what I said. This is the book about the 14th Amendment. And Randy Barnett has been just impossible. He's been, he disappeared for months off social media. Uh, none of his famous gifts, none of his reaction gifts that he's famous for, and you know, and his dunks, and and you know, all those things that you expect from a constitutional professor. Uh, no, we we he, he reemerged with a new book, uh, uh, which he has co-authored with Evan Burnick about the Fourteenth Amendment. But it's not the Fourteenth Amendment that we necessarily, that most of us are familiar with. Uh, and he's got some very novel ideas about it, and I am going to find a way, and I do have that way in mind, to uh, to move the conversation into the putative theme of Culmination Podcast, which is free speech and censorship. It's a very, very 14th amendment issue. I see the nodding taking place. You'd like to see that. Randy, tell me just a... a, a, a just the elevator pitch on the books for people who have not yet had a chance to get up to speed. I haven't seen the Wall Street Journal article, and we'll take it from there. Well, first thing, uh, Ron, thank you for having me on the show. Welcome. I really appreciate it. Um, and you'll be surprised to hear because you're a lawyer who has been imbued in the legal culture, something I was surprised to realize once this book came out. And that is that most people have never heard of the 14th Amendment, that it's going to sound shocking to you. But including a, a very well-known talk show host uh, I did an interview with who admitted on air after we talked for like 30 seconds. Uh, and he'd said it was the shortest memo. Uh, it was a very short amendment. I said, no, well, it happens to be the longest amendment in the constitution. <laughs> and then he had freely admitted to his very good credit that he knew nothing about it. Um, and, uh, and that's certainly true of ordinary people. So let me just say it's the most important amendment you've never heard about. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, that almost every uh, virtually I mean, all First Amendment challenges, including free speech, free expression, um, uh, right, of, uh, right of assembly, uh, all Second Amendment challenges, right to keep their arms, your Fourth, Fifth and Sixth Amendment challenges in the due process area of criminal procedure. If that if if you're hearing about a challenge to a state law, that's actually a 14th Amendment challenge. 
because those amendments that we call the Bill of Rights did not originally apply to the federal government, and they only apply to the federal government via, if they, if this, this is not actually the right way to think of it, but it's the way courts think of it. They only apply to the, for, uh, to the federal government via the 14th Amendment. So um, it's the most important amendment you've never heard of, if you've never heard of it. And unfortunately, if you have heard of it, you've heard of it in law school, um, and, you, and almost everything you've heard about the 14th Amendment is wrong. Um, if you actually went to a good law school, the better the law school you went, the more likely you are to be mistaught uh, the 14th <laughs> Amendment. And it doesn't matter if you were taught by a professor on the left or a professor on the right, because there is kind of a universal incorrect consensus about what the 14th Amendment uh, meant and did not mean. And that's why this book is called The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, It's Letter and Spirit, because this was a book written first and foremost for legally educated people to correct their misinterpretations of the 14th Amendment. But then it turns out it's going to do a great public service to bring people up to speed um, about what the 14th Amendment is, because it does so in a narrative way. It explains how the amendment came about as a way of understanding what it meant. Um, and um, essentially um, what it was, it was an amendment put into the Constitution uh, by the Republicans who took control um, uh, during the Civil War. And it was the Republican uh, election of 1860 that drove the South out of the Union, giving the Republicans complete control of Congress with a few remaining Northern Democrats still in, in, in Congress. Um, and what those Republicans did uh, eventually, they passed a lot of civil rights laws immediately, a lot of anti-slavery laws immediately. They abolished slavery in the District of Columbia. They would refuse to admit any new state like West Virginia unless it had an anti-slavery provision on its platform. So they did pretty much everything they thought they constitutionally could do, uh, eventually up to including the Emancipation Proclamation, which was a war measure uh, and was only enacted pursuant to the war-making powers of, of the president. Um, but they finally put in the Constitution a bar on slavery in the form of the 13th Amendment. And most anti-slavery people and Republican Party, the book explains, was an anti-slavery party. It was formed to be an anti-slavery party, which is why the South left when, the, when Lincoln won the presidency. Um, everybody assumed, most all the opponents of slavery assumed that once you abolish slavery, then everything would be fine because then blacks would, free blacks would then assume their, their lawful status as citizens of the United States, um, and we could go forward. But in fact, what happened was a tragic tale of Southern resistance um, to the emancipation of the freedmen um, and, uh, and the reimposition by means of what were called the Black Codes of a legal regime uh, in which they were systematically deprived of their civil rights. Um, and so thus, was, thus we witnessed the rise of state-organized um, um, uh, white supremacy, but also a regime of private terrorism, uh, which was abetted by the lack of protection afforded uh, individual free black and their white uh, allies in the South, right Republican allies of their civil rights. And so the 14th Amendment, um, the 13th Amendment was the amendment the Republicans uh, put in the Constitution to abolish slavery. The 14th Amendment was the amendment was the do over amendment they did to ensure they had the power to pass civil rights laws, which they already were passing under the rubric of the 13th Amendment, uh, and to fight white supremacy um, in, a, uh, in a more effective way than even they were doing under the 13th Amendment. How much time between the 13th and 14th Amendments? Uh, 13th Amendment is, I think, 1866. 14th Amendment is uh, 1868. So, um, it's a, it's, they, so the Republicans are still 
very much in charge of both houses of Congress. Yes, yes. And they're still and essentially it, it, able to elect Republicans to national office in the Southern states because the black codes haven't been entirely effective yet in. Right. But to help ensure that they passed the 15th Amendment, uh, and it's one of the motivations for passing the 15th Amendment, which ensures the right of black suffrage. Um, although very controversial, it only ensured the right of black male suffrage. Um, so um, that was a crucial a part of the Republican agenda, which was to enable it to win elections nationwide rather than be a sectional party, uh, because they were going to get the loyalty of the freed blacks, who in some states were the majority uh, of those state electorates. And it was only by the systematic disenfranchisement of African-Americans that Democrats were able to come back into power. Um, and even though Republican administrations, the Grant administration initially fought them very hard on this, ultimately putting the Ku Klux Klan out of business, um, uh, the courts undermined this effort uh, by systematically uh, gutting the 14th Amendment and ultimately the, the 15th Amendment as well until there was a revival of the rights protected by the 14th Amendment in the 1960s. So in the, it was the, um, not the, was it the slaughterhouse cases? Yes, the slaughterhouse cases was the first of the gutting. It continued on through another case called United States versus Crookshank, and then another case called uh, the civil rights cases in which the Republican Civil Rights Act of 1875, which was a public accommodations law, non-discrimination in public accommodations, that was declared unconstitutional um, in the 1880s in the civil rights cases, and finally culminating in uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, in 1896. Um, uh, the, again, another example of the gutting of the 14th Amendment. Uh, now, the 14th Amendment did eventually get a revival, but it did so in a distorted form. Um, so let me just tell you the piece that was taken out, because if I read this to you, or if I recite it for you, you're going to think this is a really important thing. Um, and it is says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Let me say that again. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So wouldn't it be a bit surprising to know that from uh, 1873, when the slaughterhouse cases was decided until today, that, that um, uh, provision has only been cited twice favorably in the Supreme Court once a majority opinion in 1999 cited it in defense of a federal right to interstate right to a right of interstate travel. That was the only time. And then Justice Thomas, in a very uh, important case, uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago, which protected the right to keep and bear arms uh, from state laws, he cited it in his concurring opinion, which provided the fifth vote. He relied on it exclusively. This is the Privileges or Immunities Clause. He relied on it exclusively for providing the fifth vote to uphold the individual right to keep and bear arms against the states. But the other four conservative justices refused to revive the 14th, the Privilege or Immunities Clause, which they were asked to do, and they used the Due Process Clause instead. And of course, the four progressive judges wanted to do ni neither uphold the individual right to bear arms nor restore the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So that was eight to one. So, so this was when you, su substantive due process, right? Yeah, that's what the majority relied on. When you pull that clause out of the 14th Amendment, which was the heart of the 14th of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, that leaves you with the due process and the equal protection clause, which we call the due process of law clause and the equal protection of the laws clause, because there's more words in those clauses than sometimes are acknowledged. 
Uh, that left those two clauses to do all the work. They didn't do much work in the beginning, but eventually their roles grew and grew. And it's like, if you have, if you lose a tooth, the other teeth are going to move over to try to fill the space occupied by the missing tooth, but the result is neither perfect nor pretty. Um, <laughs> and, and that's really what happened uh, when the 14th Amendment was gutted. It did come back. And so the, that's why I'm saying right now, to, even today, the 14th Amendment is the most important amendment you've never heard of, but it's come back in a distorted form. The Due Process Clause had to be distorted to make up the gap left by the Privilege Immunities Clause, and so did the Equal Protection Clause have to be distorted. So we're so we're still sort of hobbling along with this with this uh, jury rigged version of the Fourteenth Amendment. I remember when I was in the actually when I was in my, I guess it was first year constitutional law with Marty Reddish at Northwestern, and he just he mocked the, the is this substantive due process process substance. They sound they're like very different things. Well, Why actually that. That, that label was formulated precisely to, uh, as a form of mockery. Uh -huh. That was not a, it's now an accepted doctrine, which you have to teach. But the term was originally formulated uh, as a form of ridicule or mockery because it just like substantive due process seems to be a contradiction in terms, it's opposite procedural due process seems like a complete redundancy. redundancy it's like saying right. process due process. So that's why it was formulated. Now we don't accept, we do not agree with modern substantive due process doctrine, but we do think that the due process of law does require inquiry uh, with the modern substantive due process doctrine requires judges to identify certain liberties that they deem to be fundamental. And those fundamental liberties got really get really heightened protection Whereas all other liberties virtually get no protection. So all the action is getting your liberty that you like declared to be a fundamental liberty or, or shoehorning yourself in to one that already has been identified, which is one reason why the First Amendment has grown as people right. try to get all their liberties into the freedom of speech. Um, we, we reject that approach, uh, but we do think that the due process of law uh, requires a judicial process in which two things are done, not just one. One of the things is a judicial process to ensure you're really guilty of what you're accused of. See the Rittenhouse uh, trial, for example. But the second one is to make sure that you're that no one is deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, meaning a genuine law that's within the uh, scope of the legislature's competence to enact. So every time you have a commerce clause challenge that says this law is outside the commerce power of of of, um, uh, of Congress. The reason why you're in court, the reason why you have a, a right to a judge to decide that is the due process of law. The due process of law enables you to have a judicial forum in which you can contest whether Congress has exceeded its Congress power, commerce power. So every due commerce clause challenge is also a due process of law challenge. Uh, as is every First Amendment challenge, also a due process of law challenge, because that's what gets you into court. So the Commerce Clause is an interesting place to land on this, because it's easy to understand how incorporation worked and works, and, and probably would largely work on with, with, with so the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, as regards what states can do. It might not look all that different, except maybe leaner and more doctrinally rational than, for example, calling the right to an abortion a privacy right and resting that on a penumbra and an emanation. Leaving that 
the really controversial cases, which I know you address also aside. Or we actually don't address, we don't address, address those in cases. the book. No. In, the, in, the, in the book, you don't. Right. Uh, but I but I know that you have spoken that you have that you have discussed it because it's an obvious question. I guess I we're we're there now. We're not there now because I'm going to first ask you first the Commerce Clause question and then another one. The Commerce Clause question is what we have seen over the last 75 years is that there's almost an unbridled power ascribed to Congress to regulate under the Commerce Clause. And if you if a government does something that is so outrageous that even the Supreme Court can't find that it can't be possibly rationalized as being a regulation of commerce. You've really stunk up the room. How would that work on a state, on, on an, how would incorporation work in the Commerce Clause context? Would, you, would, 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 would the federal courts become courts of review of every state legislative act? Well, first of all, just to remind you, there's a due process clause in the Fifth Amendment, which applies to the federal government. So when you're suing the federal government because it succeeded its powers, that's a Fifth Amendment challenge. Um, I, I should. But is it what I was saying? My point was it's a due process of law. It's part of the due process of law against the federal government under the I Fifth see. Amendment that you can challenge the commerce power. Under the 14th Amendment, it's a it's a due process, a judicial assessment of the states. But the question still remains. Um, what is the relationship between the federal government and the states when you have a challenge to state laws? This requires not a theory of rights, although because um, pretty much all of our liberties should be protected from arbitrary actions by states that don't have the authority to do what they're doing. What it requires is a theory of, of legislative power. Now, the theory of legislative power at the federal level is provided by the enumerated powers in the Constitution, coupled with the necessary and proper clause, which is also an enumerated power. The, uh, pow the scope of powers at the state level is governed by a theory which was developed greatly after the 14th Amendment was enacted called the police power of the states. Um, now, that's not the only power states have. They have a taxation power um, and they have spending powers. They have other powers, but and a power of eminent domain. But they are the police powers, the power they have to restrict liberty in order to protect the health and safety as well as the public morals. Uh, um, the, what, what public morals means is a part we have to talk about in the book. I don't think we should get into it today. Um, but the, remember, this is, a, this, is a, this is a pretty big book because we have a chapter on the, on the police power of states, or at least have a very important part of a chapter on the police power of states. But you do need that theory, which is why the concept of the police power goes all the way back past the founding. Um, but the, a more constrained theory of the police power was developed immediately after 1868. In fact, the year the 14th Amendment was enacted, Thomas Cooley enacted a treatise called the Limitations, Constitutional Limitations, which was a theory of the constitutional limitations of state laws. Uh, in which he developed a theory of the police power the same year the 14th Amendment is enacted because you need a theory of the police power in order to, un to just identify when a privilege or immunity has been abridged and when it has not been abridged. Well, that's because my question, a, I guess. Because yeah. a proper exercise of the police power is not actually an abridgment of your privileges or immunities. I was a state court prosecutor before I was a law professor. I prosecuted murders, rape, and robbery. People do not have a right to engage in acti those activities. And the police power allows the government to prohibit those activities because they violate the rights of others. Likewise, liberty can be regulated uh, if its exercise threatens or creates an unreasonable risk of harm to the rights of others. You can regulate liberty in advance. That's what tort law does.
So there is all kinds of ways in which liberty can justly be restricted in order to protect the rights of others. And those don't abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens. So what courts need to look to is to see whether a law is a genuine good faith exercise of those powers. And then we have to figure out what those powers are or not. Um, I mean, in the most immediate in the most immediate context, this co- arises in the context of uh, COVID restrictions, um, because the question is, are these restrictions good faith exercises of the police power to protect health and safety or not? I mean, the only thing they really could be are health laws, uh, which is within the province of the police power of the states, not the federal government, but the police power, of, unless unless we're talking about a federal uh, uh, entity. Um, so the question is, is it a legitimate health law? Well, there needs to be a judicial process to, 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 to ascertain whether this really was or really is an, a valid assertion of the power of the states to protect the health um, and or not, rather than simply hands off um, and say, we're not going to look at it. Where you see the federal courts intervening in the last couple of years uh, with respect to COVID restrictions is solely if those laws express the free uh, interfere with the free exercise of religion. Why? Because that was an enumerated right, which even Marty Reddish would think ought to be protected by the courts, but not, but not the economic liberties, um, uh, the right to pursue a a lawful occupation, the right to pursue a job, the right to have a business. uh, Those are not considered to be protected liberties, although the right to make and enforce contracts and to use, own, and enjoy real and personal property was one of the privileges of citizenship protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and enshrined in the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. So we are talking now about a, a very, first of all, it, 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 this concept reinvigorates the, the original constitutional language of that the rights not enumerated or left to the several states. Not, not, it doesn't negate, you might, there could be an argument that it, it negates those in favor of a stronger federalism, but it does acknowledge that those have a constitutional meaning. In other words, that rights, the, the, the fact that there isn't necessarily a right to, what, what were the examples that you, that you gave, the, a right to engage in your lawful employment? Or how about, a, how, let's, let's put that one aside because that's controversial, right? To, how about a right to raise your own children? How about right. that? It, it's, it, it, right, I mean, not, completely, that's, uh, that's not in the constitution. And we've got- If you think you have a right- If I mean, you think you have a right- Pushing on exactly that door right now. Right, if you think you have a right to raise your own children, if the, and you think you have a constitutionally protected right to raise your own children, then you believe in unenumerated rights. You believe in rights that are not expressly enumerated in the first eight amendments of the of the Bill of Rights. And not only that, um, I think most people, if, if you would ask them, if is there a right of privacy that should exist at, at the constitutional level? You'd say, well, no, no problem. You've got the Fourth Amendment. That searches and seizures. That, I don't have cops busting into my house. I want to know the government's not listening to my phone calls. I want to know the government's not just following me around for all kinds of ways you can invade somebody's privacy without reaching the constitutional level of a Fourth Amendment violation. That's not a right. So, so our but judges- here's the thing. But here's the thing, Ron. There's, it's very common, and I, and I think your listeners or your viewers are going to immediately think that it, once you've identified a right as a constitutional right, that automatically means the government must lose. We're accustomed to the modern rights theory, which is called sometimes referred to as rights as Trump, because in Bridge, 
if you have a trump card uh, and we're not talking about the, the former president now we're talking about the game of bridge if you if you have a trump card that that suit that's the trump card beats all the other ones automatically and we're the modern theory of rights is that rights like the freedom of speech and the freedom of press they're trump and they will overcome any legislation well that's a myth that's not even true in court of those rights but yeah, yeah. Under the theory that, that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, the way it was done and the way it was meant to be done, identifying the right is just the beginning of the, of the, of the process of, uh, of analysis. It's not the end. It doesn't mean you win. It means you, ha you, get it, you have a right. Having a right means government needs to be exercising a restriction of that right. Uh, they have to have a good reason for it. It can't be arbitrary. The due process of law is a, is, is a principle, the spirit, this is a book, the subtitle of this book is The Letter and the Spirit, and the spirit of the due process of law is no arbitrary government power. There's got to be a good faith justification. It can't just be that government doesn't like what you're doing and they just stop you from doing it because they don't like it. Um, they have to justify it. So the existence of the right simply turns, the, turns our, our attention over to what is actually the government's justification. In the case of COVID laws, that justification can evolve as our knowledge of the disease evolves. So in the very beginning of a, of a new pandemic, we've never heard of before, we've never seen before, and we look at other countries and we see people seemingly falling like flies um, to this new disease, government is empowered under the police power to take affirmative measures, perhaps in the absence of definitive evidence, because there's no definitive evidence and it's their responsibility to protect the health and the safety of the people. But as time goes by, the burden increases on the government to justify what it's doing on the basis of the empirical consequences of the, the, the empirical nature of the disease and the empirical consequences of constraints on liberty that have been previously used to fight the disease. As you learn more about it, those, that the rationality of those laws can be called into question. Um, even though they were constitutional in the beginning. And there needs to be the due process of law, the original meaning of the due process of law means there needs to be a judicial forum in which a neutral judge will decide between the individual citizen who is ultimately the sovereign of this country and the government who are supposed to be its servants as to whether the servants have exceeded the authority they've been delegated either by the U.S. Constitution or by their state constitutions. So, so is this akin to an arbitrary and capricious test like we see in administrative law? Um, I don't really want to buy into any given test that might be. The historic concept was arbitrariness. I mean, that's the reason why the arbitrary and capricious, that's where arbitrary comes from and arbitrary and capricious. But whether administrative law has the test right or not, I'm not enough of an ad law guy to be able to say that. Where does it come from then? Where does the what's the if the judge if you're saying to the judge you're no longer just going to be looking for stuff that appears in black on a white background in the text of the Constitution, we're going to ask you to delve into reasonableness into, uh, you know what what, 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 we, what call we call means it's just called means ends fit. There's got to be enough sufficient me, uh, justification for the government to adopt a means to a particular end. Now, the end is given. In this case, I, I, I happen to give an example where the end is given, that is public health is a legitimate end under the police power of states. So there's no questioning the legitimacy of the end. The issue is, is what government's doing actually a means to that end or have they become so detached or unsupported by empirical facts 
that they're likely to be motivated by other reasons, not so, public health. So having having filed, uh, like for example, number, yes. like for example, the influence of labor unions, like teachers unions, let's say. The political power of teachers unions might be responsible for certain policies being implemented that are not actually justified on public health measures, but because of the political power the teachers unions have. I'm, just, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just yeah. saying it's possible. But also it's true, but, but more importantly, for this purpose of our conversation, you just, you, you just really made a question I was about to ask a lot more interesting, because I was about to say that all of us who've been doing COVID litigation in the last year and a half have had innumerable brief points along the lines of what you just described, but under the rubric of rational, uh, uh, rational relation, is what, is what the government did rationally related to its goal. And again, it's it shoehorned into the, into, into the due process uh, approach. But what you just mentioned, I think doesn't fit in. In other words, under the rational relations test, there's relationship, there's not, you can't make an argument that the real reason is this. You can make a pretext argument, but first you have to undermine the rational relation. Whereas the, what you just described in theory could say, there could be a rational relation. But first of all, we're getting rid of narrowly tailored. Narrowly tailored is not part of, is not, is not part of, the, of the calculus necessarily. And now you say, it's true that there's a rational relation for three reasons, but here's eight reasons why it's a terrible why it's a terrible idea, or why there are other factors that actually work what caused the legislation to be uh, to be passed. Uh, Andy, do you think, in fact, I mean, the good news for you is that all the Supreme Court justices are fervent fans of Culmination Podcast. So this is the opportunity you have to get their ear. They don't read a lot. I got to tell you, it just. The younger ones, they just, they won't pick up a book, but they do love podcasts. And this is one they listen to all the time. Now let's talk a little bit about. After they listen to this podcast, they will read this book. <laughs> I, I, I know a lot of people will, especially if you send me a free one. If there's a, um, you know, if, if you send me a free one, Jane will read it actually, and she'll tell me what the good parts are. If there's a, um, we'll buy it anyway, don't worry. One for each of our kids. Let's talk about censorship. Let's talk about the First Amendment. Okay, let me. Can I just say one more thing about what you just mentioned? Yeah. The rational relate the rational relation, or what we call rationality review. That was the traditional approach to due process, which we agree with. Traditional got, as of when? Can let, what? Traditional as of when? Before traditional up to nineteen. Traditional up to nineteen fifty five. Okay, and that was even okay. even during the New Deal. If you look at the majority opinion in U.S. v. Caroline Products, not footnote four, but if you look up in the body of Caroline Products, Justice Stone reaffirms the idea that it would deny due process of law for it to deny a person the opportunity to go into court and present evidence that a law was not actually rationally related to a proper or appropriate state end. Um, and so you were allowed to bring evidence. Now, the bird, you, you bear the burden of proof if you're the challenger, but it was a burden that you could meet by bringing in evidence that would undercut the rationality of the statute. In 1955, the Supreme Court decided a case called Williamson v. Lee Optical, providing for what's called modern rational basis review. Now you notice they use the word rational, so they kind of preserve the appearance of continuity to rationality review, but it's not your old 
traditional rationality review. The new rational basis test means as long as you can, a court can imagine a possible reason why the legislature might have done it. Okay. That's, that's enough. And it does, and you can't rebut that with evidence because all it's an imaginary, it's more appropriately called conceivable basis review. If you can conceive of a relationship, that's good enough. It can't be rebutted with evidence. The traditional approach is to be able to rebut it with evidence, regardless of who bears the burden. Um, now, you know, in some cases, maybe the government bears the burden. Exactly how the 14th Amendment should be implemented is more a matter of construction than original meaning, we say. We provide our own suggestions for how that should be done in separate chapters on constitutional construction. Um, but that gets us off onto a tangent. Um, I do think it's important that we be able to go into court and challenge the rationality of be it a mass mandate or a vaccination mandate. Um, I mean, is it truly rational um, to require people who have better immunity as a result of having had COVID than they would get from a vaccine to also have a vaccine? Is that actually rational? Uh, I think you should be allowed to present evidence on that question. On the, and if the government has reasons, and there may have reasons why it is rational, they can present their evidence. Presumably, Ron, the government is not going to restrict our liberties without good reason. Okay, they, so they can't, so, they so can't the go into court and say they can't go into court and say, "Well, we can restrict your liberty because we feel like it." They have to have a good reason for it. They ought to be able to provide that reason. Well, we if see, they have one. Every law is a restriction of liberty in some in some way, right? No, Every, no. Uh, tax laws are not. I mean, no. general taxation has an indirect effect on people's liberty, but there's a there's a principal difference between taxing you to pay for an army and a military and 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 conscripting you into the service of your country in the form of a draft. The latter is a restriction on your liberty. The former is something else again. In our well, system, that is not considered to be a restriction a, a restriction on liberty, uh, because the government is a, as a monopoly needs to be funded. But Whether under, that can be philosophically justified uh -huh. completely oh, no, I, okay. is, a, is a different question. But property is a liberty, right? Right. Property is, is property. The, the due process of law pro pro prohibits the uh, uh, deprivation of life, liberty, or property right. uh, without so, due process of law. All right. So but taxation is a form of government. The government demands that I part with some of my property, right? Yeah. That's I still mean, not, look, look, Taxation is, but taxation is absolutely constitutional, depending on what kind I know of that. Is. But I'm saying no. But when I say de deprivation of the liberty, what you're telling me is it's rational. You're telling me is is that it's entirely rational, and, and and that we couldn't, and that it's axiomatic that if we're going to have government, it has to be paid for, and we can't expect the payment to be made voluntarily. I get that, but let's put taxation aside because it's definitely not where I wanted to go. And this is not one of my particularly great interests. I don't have, I don't it's also, it's also, you know, it's a different power. That's not the subject of this book. Um, let's talk about the fact, what I really want to get at is I was trying to, to trying to, to get, to, to, to get there um, using the, uh, the Socratic method. We don't have time for that. Isn't it true? <laughs> Isn't it true that ultimately you are setting up the judiciary to second guess the legislative branch, the rationality of the legislative branch, as long as you can find some liberty, that was my issue. As long as you can say that a law infringes on a liberty, judges are now empowered to ask whether or not it was rational. Well, Isn't that what, what the legislature is supposed to do? 
life, life let, we we are as we explain in the book life liberty or property primarily primarily relates to uh, the deprivation of life by means of capital punishment liberty by means of incarceration and property by means of a, a, fi a fine um, or civil judgment so essentially what the due process of law is about is none of these legal consequences can happen to you uh un and except by a valid law and that's so that's what we're talking about right well, we're talking about whether Pardon me? We want to restore privileges and immunities, though, right? Not just the due process. Privilege and immunities is kind of doing is, okay. Privilege and immunities is what is a constraint on valid laws. That is, um, a law is not valid if it deprives you of a privilege or immunity of national citizenship. And then you have to ask, what are the privileges or immunities of national citizenship? And we, and that's the that's like half the book, as we're trying to explain to you what the concept of republican citizenship was, such that. Uh, that got incorporated or that got adopted into the amendment uh, by amendment into the Constitution. Uh, so if you have a privilege of citizenship, then a law is not uh, has to be a, a, an appropriate exercise of a governmental power, which in this case is the police power that we're talking about. And if it is, it's constitutional. If it's not, it's not. And you ask, you know, if judges. Yes, I think judges have to be there as a backstop to ensure that people are not being deprived of their life, liberty, or property, except by a valid law. Um, and not, you know, Marty, your professor, Marty Reddish, notwithstanding, um, uh, uh, the American people would, in fact, conservative justices have all rejected the proposition that only enumerated rights are the ones to be protected. They've all accepted the proposition that rights that are deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history can also be protected, even if they're not enumerated, like the right of a parent to raise their own children. And our book uh, adopts that as our standard for what rights um, should be recognized, but we provide a more specific way of identifying whether something is within our deeply rooted in the nation's tradition history. We don't need to get into it, but we actually provide a more constraining approach to this conservative doctrine than even the conservatives on the court have. So when we, in our, in our last couple of minutes here, when we look at the current state of affairs in free speech, we already have a right that, as you say, is the trump card in virtually all constitutional litigation. If I, if I, I go in there winning if I prove, the, prove almost any kind of prior restraint, as long as it's the government, as long as it's, you know, it's the burden shifts to the government once, there, once, once there's a, a, you know, a restriction on, on free speech. Unlike in, in all those other situations, the presumption of regularity goes out the window. Would any of this stuff be different? Any, any of the situation we're facing now where the state, the governments, governments in general, both state and federal, are using, accept this hypo from me, are using private corporations as proxies to restrict speech. Would there be any, now, if you can prove state actor, you're in, we've got those cases, at least one of those cases cooking right now. But do you think the landscape for challenging the increasing pace of restriction of speech would be any different if we had your 14th Amendment that, the, governing the way we look at the constitution as opposed to the one that we have now? The, the original 14th Amendment uh, pr protected not only the civil, they protected civil rights, and those civil rights included not only the protections of our 
life, liberty, or property, but also the right to participate um, in a non-discriminatory fashion in the, public's, in the public domain. And it was for that reason, it was under that rubric that Republicans passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which barred racial discrimination with respect to public accommodations. Now, that was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court because it violated something they, that's come to be known as the state action doctrine. But our ex explanation of the Equal Protection Clause says that, that if there is, in fact, a common law duty to, as there is in common carriers and there are with inns and other places of public accommodation, if there is a common law duty, uh, a common law obligation of those providers not to discriminate, then a failure of the state to protect you from that discrimination is a violation of the equal protection of the laws. So therefore states have the power to protect you from that discrimination. And every state in the union has public accommodations laws that do that. And the federal government has the power under section five of the 14th amendment to step in if the states are not protecting the people's uh, in, the, in public places of public accommodation from being discriminated against. Ultimately, Congress did do that in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but because of the precedent of the civil rights cases of 1886, they had to use their commerce power to do it rather than their Section 5 powers to do it. So the answer to your question is that the states and Congress can step in and protect people's freedom of speech, let's say, from private providers if those providers amount to places of public accommodation. Now, whether they do or not is something that we don't talk about in the book. We don't even talk about this issue in the book. I actually gave a speech at the Federalist Society a couple of days ago in, in DC, in which I suggested that this is a possible way of evaluating social media platforms as places of public accommodation. I didn't actually say I'm favoring that view, only that we have to keep in mind there is a third category between private non-governmental on the one hand and public governmental on the other hand, there is a third constitutional category, and that is the category of public non-governmental. And that's what's acknowledged in civil rights laws, like the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, places no discrimination in places of, of public accommodation. So much to talk about here. What a delight, Randy. I'm so glad that we got you before you, you told me you're about to go back into hibernation. Yeah, I'm going back into hibernation again. Well, good for you. I'm sure it's all for good reasons. I hope we get to do something like this again soon. Uh, everyone should buy the book. No one's going to send you free copies, America. You have to buy it. Randy's got to make a living. It's on and Amazon. It's on and Amazon. They cut the price. I think yesterday was from 35, went down from 35 to 31.50. So get it because the price goes up and down. So get it while it's down. <laughs> Okay. You're down so long, we don't even want to know what up is. Great talking to you. Good luck with the book. Take care, Ron. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.